0: Let's open our Bibles to the book of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and we'll pick up with verse 8. We read verse 7. The last part of verse 7 says, But God that giveth the increase. One will plant another water, but it was God that gave the increase, and so does He today. Now verse 8 says, Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one. And every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. Now, if you look at that very carefully, you'll see that they're not one individual. The man that plants, the one that planteth, and he that watereth are one, but they're one in purpose or in the work. Because in the next statement, you'll see that every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. So they're separate in, in their labor or as individuals, but they're one in the work that they're doing. Whether one plants or one waters, it's all one work. It's the Lord's work. And then it goes on to say in verse 9, For we are laborers together with God. So the one that plants, the one that waters, all are workers together or laborers together with God. For it is God's work. And it says, Ye are God's husbandry, ye are God's building. Now notice that we move from the fact that we're talking about planting and watering to A building. We're moving out of the uh, agriculture or the vineyard or whatever you might want to call it, being God's husbandry, unto God's building. And using a different symbol here for the things of God. Now then it says in verse 10, we're going to see the foundation here of the building. According to the grace of God which is given unto me as a wise master builder. Paul said he was a master builder. He's like the superintendent or the foreman or the one that uh, leads in the building and uh, knows what it's all about from the beginning to the end, carries it through, understands it thoroughly. And he says, I have laid the foundation, and another uh, buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So the foundation for this uh, church at Corinth was laid by Paul. The foundation of any church has to be, must be a true foundation. And every church must have a good foundation. And the only foundation is the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ must be the only foundation of any true church. And if he's not the foundation, then the church has nothing to be built upon. And Paul not only affirms that the church at Corinth had a good foundation, but he's saying as much as that Jesus Christ is the one and only true foundation. Other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Not only the foundation of our faith, but he's the foundation of the church. He truly is the foundation of our faith. We have no one to stand upon and to rest upon and to depend upon, but the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one that is the Savior. So in that sense, He's the true foundation. You'll find in the book of uh, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20, Ephesians 2 and verse 20, it says this, "...and are built upon the foundation." Of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So that we're talking about the true foundation. It says in verse 21, in whom all the buildings fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. In whom ye, he's speaking here at the church of Ephesus, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. The church is to be a spiritual habitation. The apostles uh, are a part of that foundation. But Jesus Christ himself is that chief cornerstone of that foundation. Now then, <clears throat> Paul speaks of the superstructure that is built back in our text now. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 12. He speaks of the superstructure that is built upon this foundation. If you have a foundation, that's not all there is to the building, is it? You have to have the building to go up. The superstructure. And he says in verse 12, Now if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble. He says they have six kinds of material here pointed out as examples of how we build upon that foundation. It says in verse 10, the latter part, "...let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon." So if we have the foundation, we need to take heed and be careful how we build upon that foundation. And of these six kinds of materials, we'll find that they all must stand the test of fire. Some cannot. And we know the ones that cannot will perish. And be burned up. The ones that stand the test of fire will come out even more pure and purified. With all the dross and impurities burned away. So he says gold and silver and precious stones, wood, hay and stubble. We know that the wood, hay and stubble would burn up readily. But the gold and the silver and the precious stones will remain and abide. And will stand the test of fire. You know, we've spoken of the fact that the fire tries every man's work of what sort it is. And uh, we know that the sort of the work and the motive behind it has uh, a great deal to do with what kind of a material is being used. But I wonder if we could not find some things that would correspond to that which is like gold and silver and precious stones. If you were looking, First Corinthians 13, verse 13, you'll find three things here uh, mentioned that abide or that remain. It says this, and now abideth, now abideth, Paul says other things will pass away, but he says now abideth faith, hope, and love, or charity. These three, but the greatest of these is charity. We're, when we say charity in the Bible here, we speak of love. It's not uh, like you'd have a charitable organization today that uh, we have a tendency to use it in that respect more so today. But charity in the Bible here speaks of love. Love never faileth. It says, Now abide faith, hope, and love. These three. So uh, we might say also that the things that will remain are the things that are done in faith. The things that are done in hope. The things that are done with love. So this would be the motive and would be what sort of works we have. As you turn back to your text in the 13th verse, it says, Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Is our work a work of faith? Is it a work of hope? Is it a work of love? It should be. And these will these abide. These remain. They not only abide now, but they will abide in the eternal future. Now, we might draw some contrast to that. What are the perishable things? We know that false doctrine will perish. We know that human wisdom will perish. We know that earthly riches will perish. And if you want to find an analogy here, if you turn to the book of Revelation... Chapter 3, the church that was, uh, of course, spoken of that needed to be improved upon very much. In the book of Revelation, chapter 3, let's read verses 17 and 18. Well, let's read verse 16 to get the connection. So then, because thou art lukewarm, Jesus says, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, now look, they say, I am rich and increased with goods, and have need of nothing. Now, those goods will perish, right? All the riches of this life and this world will perish. And it says, And knoweth not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked? I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see And he goes on to say, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. They had a need to repent of uh, many things. Uh, He said earlier, I know thy works. And he knew, knew the kind of works they had. He knew the false teachings that existed. He knew the human wisdom that was exercised above divine wisdom. And so human wisdom... And false teaching and earthly riches will all pass away. And they will not stand the test of fire. We know that all the works that are classified as perishables shall be uh, tested by fire in the future at the judgment seat of Christ. And then we'll find that they will go up in smoke and will not stand that test of fire. Let's look at verse 14. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 14. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. That should indicate to you and I that our work that we build, we know that we have the foundation. He's Jesus Christ. We know that it wouldn't do any good to build if we had not the foundation because it wouldn't stand. We know that building upon that foundation, we must use the right kind of materials or else they will not stand in the day of testing. And our work should be such as would be faith, hope, and love that would stand the test of fire, that would abide the fiery trial. And it says if they do, the man will receive a reward. So we ought to be very careful that what we do in the Lord's work, we do in faith. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith that... that. uh All that's done is for His glory, and it will work out for our good. And it's done in hope. We read this morning in our lesson in first, in Colossians, the first chapter, the hope which is laid up for them in heaven, and it's revealed by the truth of the gospel. So every Christian has a hope. It's called that blessed hope. And we look forward. It's an aspiration of the things of the future beyond this life. The Bible says if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we're of all men most miserable. If, it, if our hope is just for this life alone, then it's not the hope that the Bible is speaking of. We need to have that hope for the future. And that after this life is over, that there's still life, that there's still uh, going into the presence of Christ, that there's still the, the great... Uh, wonderful judgment seat of Christ wherein we will receive rewards and be rewarded for those things that are built properly. And uh, so there's the hope. And it's also that we do it with a motive of love because love has to do with everything. You know, Paul speaks of special gifts and all that a person might have in that same chapter we read, 1 Corinthians 13, But he says if a man has not love, it is what? He says it is nothing. In other words, it doesn't amount to anything. You just cross it out. It cancels out everything else if we don't do it uh, with love. If we do not have that motive of love behind it all then it's considered as nothing. If a man can work all miracles, if he could understand all prophecies, if he were to go about and give his body to be burned, Paul says, whatever he he could sacrifice himself physically for the sake of someone else and do it without that motive of love and without the desire. I don't think a man would ordinarily do that without love. But Paul said if it were possible that a man do such a thing even. It would not be even considered unless he did it in love. Now, then, it's possible for a man to do it uh, without the motive of love, too, or Paul wouldn't have mentioned it. You read and hear on the news, television, and uh, through the media, where these fellows, like over in Ireland, and they give themselves, they, they starve themselves to death, and all that kind of stuff for a cause. But that doesn't necessarily. Uh, indicate that there is real, genuine, spiritual, divine love behind what they're doing. They may be doing it for a show. They want to give themselves for that. Now, they may love their cause to an extent that they're willing to go through with it. But Paul is talking about a deeper and a spiritual, more spiritual thing here. And he says, though a man would give his body to be burning, have not love. It amounts to nothing. So we know that if we do these things, if we build on that foundation with love and we have the right motives about our work and, and uh, we do it as God would have us to do it, then we shall receive a reward. Every man that builds shall receive a reward for those kind of works. And, you know, that helps us to kind of test ourselves along life's way. And in, in, do, in this way, so that when we go about doing anything, that we'll say, now, why am I doing this? Why do I do this? And if we cannot come back to the fact that we do it because we love to do it, or because we have a concern, or a sympathy, or a desire, or, a, a, uh, or answering the need for the help of someone else, If we don't do it out of a willing and cheerful, loving heart, then we just as well not do it. As far as the spiritual value is concerned. Uh, It may actually help someone for us to do something as a matter of uh, habit or duty. But if we don't do it from love, it's not going to bring us the reward and blessing, is it? It's just like Jesus said when those that gave alms, he says, they gave... To be seen of men, he says, you have your reward. That's all they'll get, is that being seen of men. But he tells us when we give, when when you give, you give from your heart. You keep your reward uh, for when it will come from him in heaven. And so let's learn to do it with the right motivation. But we do have the promise of rewards. Now then, I believe that that most of us uh, will be surprised in that day. Uh, I never could think of receiving very many rewards. I think that the surprise is going to come. Just like Jesus pointed out, you know, He said, uh, those that came and said, when did we see you hungry and did not feed you? Or in need of clothing and did not clothe you? They said, well, when did we see this? And others said, we we just don't uh, remember ever... Uh, doing anything, so to speak, that amounted to anything. They were very surprised that, that they had ministered and found that Jesus was rewarding them. And I think there will be great surprises in heaven. I don't mean that we shouldn't expect a, uh, a reward, but most of the people, I believe most of you, that will receive the rewards think we've done very little to deserve them. And really, from the human standpoint, we have. But God may look upon us and be more gracious than we would be to ourselves. I'm sure He will be, or we wouldn't have any rewards. But the, by the same token, what I'm trying to say is that uh, we don't expect it. We're not. We're not trying to just work for a reward. Remember when that those at the at the throne they took their crowns and cast them down at the feet? Isn't it? Because we, the ones that were there felt unworthy to even have those crowns. And yet God gave those crowns. And I think we'll be very surprised in that day. I know that if I have one, I'll be happy and thankful. I hope all of mine doesn't go up in smoke. But I do hope that I uh, receive some kind of reward. And I'll be thankful for it. And if it pleases the Lord to give more, and if it's so merits it, will and it's according to His grace, well, I'll be thankful for it. But nevertheless, we find that there are going to be those that will not expect them that will receive them. It says, If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. What we're trying to point out here is that a man's loss is the loss because of the fact that he does not receive what he could have received. It's because His works will be burned up. But His salvation is not so closely connected with that. Because it says, Yet, but He Himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. In other words, His soul is saved because He had Jesus as the foundation of His faith. He is built upon that true foundation. But what He built was of sorry material. Let's not try to use sorry material building upon Christ. Let's try to use the very best that we know how, and uh, so that it will stand the test of fire. Living a Christian life then, we might say, is a very serious business, isn't it? Some people just go through this life, and I know you ought to be uh, joyful, and you ought to Laugh a little along the way and have your good times and everything, but some people go through this life as if this life doesn't amount to anything. You know, I mean, they just seem to laugh it away and just go on through and say, well, uh, you know, what if? And they just forget the seriousness of living a Christian life. I know uh, when I think about things that I fail to do, think about maybe the a lack of tenderness or kindness or consideration I've shown the other person at various times. I I think of how thoughtless that was of me. I had an opportunity to be more friendly or to be more loving or to be more caring. And I didn't live up to it. And I look back and I say, I condemn myself for it and I say that was wrong. And so then the next time I try to do a little better. I believe a Christian ought to try to do better. But uh I don't think uh, of course that we should uh just Flutter this life away, but be more serious about living it and try to make for improvement as we go along. And if we will try to improve, maybe the Lord will give us a little progress in that direction. Wherein I've been unkind to someone, I want to be more kind. Wherein I've been uh, inconsidered, I want to be more considered. When I've uh, not had the sympathy, I want to be more sympathetic. When I've not had the concern, I want to be more concerned. When I'm misjudged, I want to not be that way, but to, to judge uh, righteously and to think properly and to deal with each and every situation. So may the Lord help us to be better Christians as we grow along and go along the way. Now, we go from our works to this. The church is not only built upon a foundation, but it's like a temple. It says in verse 16, Know ye... Not that ye, and Paul speaks to the church at Corinth. He speaks to them as a local congregation and body. And he speaks to them collectively as members and individual ones. Now then, we know that each individual of us, that the Holy Spirit dwells within us. But he says, now ye, know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. Ye are the temple of God. And, and the temple of God is the place where God is to dwell. He lives in that temple. You take the picture from the Old Testament. God's presence was in that temple of old and His very Shekinah glory was in the presence of that holy place, the most holy place, I should say, because there was a holy place and the most holy place. And He was there dwelling between the cherubims, the Bible speaks of above the Ark of the Covenant, in the most holy place, behind the veil and within the veil, was God's presence. Now then, that's where He dwelt. In that tabernacle first, in Moses' day, in the temple later. In Christ, He was the temple of God upon this earth, and God dwelt in Him. The Bible tells us that that He was the dwelling place of God. And we know that uh, now... The dwelling place is the church today. It says, ye are the temple of God. And it says in verse uh, 17, If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Now the word is plural here. The word has to do more with the individual. More than with the individual, I should say. We know, as we've already stated, he says, your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which you have of God. I believe you find that over in the sixth chapter. But uh, nevertheless, each individual believer is, of course, a dwelling place for God. It says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19, what know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own. He's speaking individually now, and your for ye are bought with a price. This is you are. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So that every Christian is a dwelling place, but you as a church. Back in our text now. Verse 18 of the third chapter. Pick it up. Verse. Read again verse 17. For the temple of God is holy, which temples ye are. Now it says, Let no man deceive himself, if any man among you Seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become become a fool that he may be wise. We're told here that the wisdom of this world uh, is not for you and I. Even if we seem to be wise in this world, we ought to lay it aside and for the sake of gaining real wisdom, become as a fool as far as this world is concerned, that he may be wise. In other words, let's lay aside worldly wisdom in order that we might attain to spiritual and divine wisdom. It says in verse 19, For the wisdom of this world, look at it carefully, is foolishness with God. For it is written, He taketh the wise in their own craftiness. Now then, the wisdom of this world, as far as God is concerned, it's just like foolishness to Him. The wisdom of this world among the people of this world and those that really glory in worldly wisdom, that's the greatest thing uh, for them. They think that's the greatest is to have worldly wisdom. But God says in His sight it's foolishness because God's wisdom is far greater than that of man. And even so, He says, For it is written, He taketh the wise in their own craftiness. Now verse 20, and again... The Lord knoweth the thoughts of the wise, that they are vain. He even knows what the worldly wise thinks. And their thoughts are altogether vanity in comparison to spiritual things. Have you ever heard people talk and put all the emphasis on worldly wisdom and worldly things and just completely uh, disconnected whatsoever with any spiritual or Heavenly or divine wisdom. And it's all related to, to this earth, this life. Nothing else matters. Uh, the scientific wisdom and knowledge that men have. The worldly attainments and achievements that men have. The professions that they, oh, they're just good at everything on this earth. But listen, it says here, God says he knows the thoughts of the wise. That they are vain. It's just like vanity. Ecclesiastes says, old Solomon he says, All is vanity and vexation of spirit. We find that when the Lord classifies the the things of this earth and the things of this life, apart from having a connection with spiritual and eternal things, all of it, if it doesn't have a bearing upon spiritual and eternal and heavenly things, it's vanity. And he says, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. The thoughts of the worldly wise, he says, he knows them, that they are vain. You go back in the book of Ecclesiastes and you'll find all through that when he's talking about uh, earthly things, human things, human knowledge, human wisdom, uh, human attainments, uh, human progress, uh, possessions of this earth all temporal things, he says all is vanity and vexation of spirit. And he looked at everything under the sun. And that's the way uh, Solomon classified it. And he says here in verse 21, Therefore let no man glory in men. Let no man glory in men. If their wisdom, if the worldly wise, if their thoughts are even vain, so that God says He... He knows their thoughts and they are vain. Then why should we glory in men which are vain in the sight of God and that all they think about is vanity? We certainly should not glory in them. We're warned not to glory in men in any way. Not to glory in princes even. We're to respect and we're to uh, understand that men have... A certain certain dignity. We believe in the dignity of all men. But we don't believe in, in setting any man up as an idol. And we should not set them up as an idol. We should not set them up to glory in. It says, for all things are yours. What does it mean, all things are yours? You mean all things? Look, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death, You see, some of these were wanting to claim a special attachment to Paul, some Apollos, some Peter, some the world. But he says, the world or life or death are things present or things to come. All are yours. In other words, the Lord has made us uh, to be inheritors of his blessings, whether it comes through Paul or Apollos or Peter or whether it's the blessings He gives us in this world, or in this life, or in the life to come, or even in death. The things that are present, or the things that are in the future. He says, all are yours. Now then, on what basis? And ye are Christ. We belong to Jesus. We belong to the Lord. Ye are Christ. We're His possession. And Christ is God. Remember, the Bible says that you're heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. So we find that every believer is blessed with these many wonderful things, that all of it comes through the Lord. And therefore, we should not glory in men. Now then, I don't know how far we'll get, but let me give you this quickly. I want to point out, uh, first of all, in chapter 4, verse 1, we're going to see... God's ministers or God's servants here. And we'll develop it as we go along. In verse 2, we'll see God's leaders leaders, and what they're to be as stewards and etc. But let's pick it up verse by verse. And I won't try to give you an outline at this present time, but just look at some of it. Uh, you might title this chapter God's leaders because it has to do with those that lead. It says in verse 1, Let a man so account of us, Paul says, as the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. The ministers of Christ. In other words, let's learn to to properly evaluate both the messenger and the message. He says the ministers and the stewards of what? Of the mysteries of God. The message that they have. Now, God does have ministers. And God does call them, He instructs them, He empowers them, and they are His servants to carry out His work. They are His messengers, but the main thing is not the messenger. Paul says they should be recognized as messengers. Let a man so account of us as of ministers of Christ. They're to be recognized as ministers of Christ, but the main thing is their message, and stewards of the mysteries of God. That's the important thing that you find in verse 1. Look in verse 2. God's leaders here are to be stewards. It says, Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. God's leaders then, as his stewards, are responsible to God. They're to be faithful. They're required to be faithful. The Bible teaches that some are unfaithful. If you read over in the book of Philippians, and I won't turn over there and, and give you the the uh, places right now, but I'll just uh, mention it that Paul spoke of some that preached Christ not of of love, but of contention, and then he preached some of good uh, that the, they preached in good faith. So, but it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. You know, there are many servants of God. The deacons are servants of God. You read in Acts chapter 6 where the apostles said, Choose you out men that uh, can serve these tables. In verse 2 he says, Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, it Is not reason that we should leave the Word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, verse 3, Look ye out among you seven men of honest report full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom whom we may appoint over this business. And this serving has to do with being a deacon or a, of service in that way, in the physical and material way. Now, we know that some of them later on, we find Philip was one that was chosen and he preached. But he was an exception to some of the others. And Stephen, he gave a message and was stoned to death. But Stephen was chosen and Philip and then others. Stephen and Philip stand out as those that were not only serving in this capacity uh, other than the apostles, but we find that uh, they were preaching as well and giving their witness and preaching the word. But all of God's children are to be servants in the way that they're able to serve. If you turn to the book of Romans, the last chapter, chapter 16, verse 1, it says, I commend unto you Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the church, which is at So you have this particular lady that was a a servant in that church. And we find that everyone has a place of service. So in these first two verses, you have that it's required of them that they be faithful. Now then, I want you to notice verse 3. It says, but with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you, or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not my own self. I want us to notice this carefully and quickly. That God's messengers are often misjudged. Paul says, look, but with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not my own self. Mine own self. You know, some of God's messengers are overrated and over-praised. Some are defamed. Some are underrated. Some are not given any respect at all. But Paul says here, he does not even rate himself among others. You know, some people try to rate one preacher as he would measure up to the standard from one to ten with others. But God's Word doesn't have any classification like that. We're not to have that kind of rating. Paul says, it's a small thing that I should be judged of view of man's judgment. Yeah, I judge not my own self. Paul would not be judged by others, and he he wouldn't even judge himself. He left that until the Lord comes. And I think that's where where we ought to leave it to. When he comes, he'll give the proper judgment. If you look in verse 4, it says, "...for I know nothing by myself, yet am I not hereby justified." But he that judges me is the Lord. We have one that'll put us that will rate us properly and judge us properly and classify us properly, and we'll leave that up to him, not up to ourselves. And in verse five it says, Therefore, because this is true, because man cannot judge me, because I don't even have the capability of rating my own self and judging myself, he and he says, the Lord is the only one that can do it. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness, and will make manifest the counsel of the hearts. and then shall every man have praise of God. In other words, he's saying here that there will be a day that all will be taken into consideration, that God will be the judge. And we'll leave that up to him. Let's not do it before time. Let's wait until the time and let him take care of it. That's his business, not ours. So I'd like for us to pick up in our next lesson with verse 6. And at this time, let's stand together for a word of prayer.